Hello, and welcome to the Airline Weekly Lounge. I'm your host, Madhuri Krishnan. I'm joined today by Skift Airline Weekly Senior Analyst and Co-Founder, Jay Shabbat. Happy New Year, Jay. Happy New Year, Madhu. So in our last conversation in December, we talked about 2019, the year that was, and just looked back on the airline industry in 2019. Well, a decade just concluded. We just turned the calendars to 2020, and um, let's talk about the 2010s and what that meant for the U.S. industry and what it might mean for the U.S. industry in the 2020s. Tell me some what, what stood out in the 2010s for you, the U.S. airlines. In um, so let's start with revenues. Like what what happened? What was the overall sort of big thing that happened in the U.S. industry? in the last 10 years. And uh, yeah, let's, let's just take it from there. Yeah, Madhu. So it's, it's a good story to tell because uh, the, the, the last decade was a very good one for U.S. airlines and completely opposite from the horrors that they uh, experienced a decade earlier. Um, if you'll recall, uh, the decade that started in the year 2000 involved a lot of bankruptcies, a lot of you know heavy losses and um, a lot of distress with labor and uh, you know people losing their jobs. It was just a really awful story. It just couldn't couldn't have been any different in the last ten years in, in the decade that started in 2010. So what are, what are the reasons for that? Dif- those differences, um, you know, a big one was of course consolidation. We can start with that. Um, you had uh, one big merger. Let's take it back to the first actually big merger, big influential merger in the industry actually happened in, in 2005. And that was when America West, a small airline in Phoenix, kind of went out on a limb and bought U.S. Airways, which was bankrupt. Yeah. Um, and and we, all kind of, we all kind of laughed at that one, didn't we? Or, or we did. Yeah, kind and of... it was, it, right. It was, it was a little minnow swallowing a you know, big giant. And uh, they um, wound up making it work really well. And one of the reasons why it worked well is that just happened. It was timed very well. It just happened to coincide with um, a better economy in the U.S. Um, there was a whole credit bubble called the real estate bubble that was sort of inflating uh, uh, demand in the economy, and that really uh, that really helped a lot. And uh, one of the sort of innovations in that merger was, um, you know, traditionally it was always seen. As uh, if, if you wanted to make an airline more efficient, you just had to grow. There's just just the nature of airline economics kind of dictates that. But the America West guys, led by Doug Parker and Scott Kirby at the time, they um, sort of took a counterintuitive approach and, and just slashed capacity. And it wound up driving up yields. Again, as I said at the time, the economy was doing better as well. So it worked very well. So the next big merger was also in that prior decade. It was the 2008 Delta uh, Northwest merger. Um, that was so successful that it triggered a whole bunch of mergers um, in the 2010s. Those included United uh, and Continental merging, Southwest buying AirTran, American U.S. Airways then merged in 2013, I guess it was. And then finally, you had uh, Alaska buying Virgin America. So that consolidation just it removed a lot of the competitiveness of the industry. I mean, there were just fewer pricing departments competing against each other. It was just a little easier to practice capacity discipline. Um, you know, these airlines had, had just an easier time controlling their turf. At one time, you know, you might have two or three airlines at a hub, whereas, you know, now, now you, you have only one. So consolidation is, is kind of a good point to start in explaining why U.S. airlines did so well last decade. 
And if I can break in, I mean, it's I think it's important to remember as well to when we draw the contrast between the t- 2000s and the 2010s, that several of those airlines, Delta, Northwest, uh, American, Continental, were all um, were all in bankruptcy. And in the 2010s, we didn't really see any airlines in the country go bankrupt, really. That's right. That's right. That's right. And the the bankruptcies um, that some of these airlines went through. Now, we did see, you know, American was bankrupt in uh, in in last decade. Um, They uh, when they merged with U.S. Airways, they they were bankrupt. But the point is, is 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 your your point is a good one. The bankruptcies were were um, important because they allowed airlines to go in and really gut their cost structures. They can do things to their costs that they would, wouldn't have otherwise been able to do because of, you know, when you're in bankruptcy, you can break contracts with, with, you know, with workers, you can break contracts with suppliers. So with airports, things like that. So um, that was, that was the bankruptcies were instrumental as a cost cutting, um, the cost cutting that proved so effective. Right. So that, that, that I think, uh, is probably a good place to start then, we're, since we were talking about cost cutting and bankruptcies. Um, what happened in the 2010s um, in terms of costs for the U.S. airlines? Yeah, in the 2010s, so it wasn't all a pretty cost picture. It, it's um, labor costs actually uh, rose quite sharply in the 2010s because the U.S. airlines were suddenly um, right. doing so much better. Um, and they had so much more pricing power to control their revenues. They were, um, you know, when you're when you're just, as you might expect, when when an airline is making a lot of money, it provides a lot of bargaining power for unions. So the labor unions were able to um, extract a lot of, uh, maybe, maybe not all. They didn't win back everything that they 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 lost in, in the decade prior, but the, but they won a lot of pay raises. They won, you know, better benefits and things like that, scope protections. Um, what could be outsourced and, and, and things like that. So labor costs did rise quite sharply in the 2010s. Now, an airline's number one cost, of course, fuel. Um, fuel was sort of a mixed picture last decade. We, we called it in the issue, I think, a tale of two halves. Whereas right. in the first half of the decade from 2010 to about mid-2014, you had a situation where, where oil prices were were very high. I mean, they're, you know, three straight years of $100 oil, but stable. They, they weren't moving around too much. And that is almost as important as the price itself because it just allows for you know, better planning. If, you, if oil prices um, are not moving around a lot, even if they're at a high level, it just makes it so much easier to plan. You, know, you can take out right. more capacity and just adjust your fares accordingly. So you had that you know, kind of that was sort of the, the picture of, of the first half of the 2010s. Then suddenly in sort of mid to late 2014, you saw a huge decrease in fuel prices. I mean, the market just collapsed. And uh, 2015 was just like the greatest year ever for U.S. funds. The, the profit margins were extraordinarily high. And, and prices did creep up later on, uh, you know, 2016 through today, but never to, you know, they never reached $100 a barrel. They never it bounced around a little, but never to, to the point where U.S. airlines were entering distress territory again. So it was, you know, all in all, it was a good picture. Um, it, it was, you know, the fuel the fuel situation was a pretty good one. And then, of course, you have, you know, the fact you, you didn't have a 9-11 type emergency or shock. You didn't have uh, a Great Recession type shock as you had in 2008. So 
yes, there were, you know, there's all, all sorts of geopolitical unrest and other disturbances throughout the decade, but nothing as impactful to demand as, as some of those things that happened, you know, a decade earlier. There were no, in fact, you didn't even have anything um, as uh, damaging as like the SARS health crisis in 20, okay. 2003, I guess that was, or the H1N1 virus in 2009. Or, so it was, it was a relatively serene decade as far as those things go. And I think, you know, that's important to to note, and it is kind of related to oil shocks. I mean, this is an industry that is really at the mercy of exogenous shocks that are completely beyond its control. And an airline executive, several airline executives have told me well, with uh, regarding oil prices, it's not the high prices that were a problem in, 20, in the 2000s. It was the volatility. And similarly, without exogenous shocks like a 9-11 or a SARS epidemic, I mean, it just makes for a more stable industry and one that that can, you know, where the planning that's occurred can actually be executed on, right? So, um, and just to put some numbers on the head oil price volatility in 2000, I believe it. Well, let's, let's go back to 1998 WTI oil prices at one point fell below $10 a barrel. I remember the economist had that, that fantastic cover that was Drown, drowning in oil, I think it was called. It was the right, tagline. right, and then and then by uh, ten years later, in the summer of two thousand eight, um, oil prices at one point hit something like one hundred and forty. I mean, that's yep. just crazy, right? And that spike to one hundred and forty eight dollars a barrel um, occurred quickly. It was like within the space of a couple of months. Yep, um, which you know, no one can plan for that. <laughs> right. right. So the that's one thing, as you pointed out, you know, the 2010s were relatively stable in terms of like the big ex- sort of big factors beyond the airline's control, oil and um, geopolitical turmoil or disease. Yep. yep. Uh, and I, I should add that it wasn't all a uh, um, a bad picture on the cost side in terms of, you know, I talked about how labor was uh, um, inflationary, but at the same time, airlines also... Uh, introduced a lot of new technologies that saved money on um, the most obvious being, you know, the new aircraft that they introduced with, uh, with better fuel economics and they need to be maintained less often. They were, they were more cost-effective. And then you also had a lot of innovation in the distribution space where airlines could um, uh, sell tickets um, directly to their customers without third parties, or even when they did sell through third parties, um, you know, they, uh, the cost of that was less too through, Due to, due to a variety of factors. So the, the cost picture was mixed. Right. But the revenue picture was, is kind of an entirely different story, right? I mean, we, we started the decade with, uh, with this new thing that everyone loves to hate on, but was great for the airline's bottom line, and that's ancillary revenue. Can you go on yeah. and explain that a little bit? Yeah. So that was another sort of big uh, business model innovation. Um, and uh, it started in the, uh, you know, sort of right around the recession when airlines were kind of desperate and you had, uh, you know, even carriers like American, um, which never traditionally charged for things like, you know, a first bag or second bag. They started doing that. But by, um, you know, by, by, by the early 2010s, you know, everybody was charging for everything. I mean, it was all a, uh, what do they call it, like a, a la carte model where you kind of debundled um, all of the services that you provide. So you charge a base fare, but then you'd also, you know, charge extra if you wanted to check a bag and extra if you wanted a, this kind of seat and with more legroom. And 
Um, that was that was billions and billions of dollars worth of revenues. That was a very meaningful innovation. Um, so you know, combine that with the pricing power that consolidation and capacity discipline yielded, and you really had a lot of revenue momentum strength during the decade. Um, we should also add uh, there were there were quite a lot of other um, kind of drivers of, of revenue growth last decade. Uh, many of them, you know, continue even today, and, and will likely get stronger um, in in the coming decade. Uh, but one of them is you know these loyalty plans that are just enormous. I mean, no no airlines outside of the U.S. have anything close to what you know Delta, American, United have, even Southwest, in terms of their ability to generate just you know huge amounts of money by selling miles to credit card companies and other business partners. Um, so there's that. Um, once once the U.S. airlines were started starting to make a lot of money, they um, were able to plow a lot of cash back into product investment. So that means uh, you know very competitive business class products, for example. Um, which uh, were able to command strong revenue premiums. Then there's, of course, the joint ventures that became, you know, very big throughout the decade. Um, an example just being, you know, Delta's joint venture with Air France KLM. Um, there are many others, many more that will likely happen in, in the coming years. And then just some simple, uh, more, you know, mundane advancements like just better revenue management algorithms and things like that. Um, being able to brand fair so that it was you know more more clear to customers just e easier to sell easier to uh segment different passenger groups so lot, lots of innovation on the revenue front yeah and that's um that's really a good place to sort of pivot to um what you see in your crystal ball when you look at the US air airline industry um for the coming decade, and let's start with the near term. I mean, the next year or two. What uh, trends do you see continuing, and what do you think uh, they'll mean for the industry? Right. Well, of course, you know the, the size and the success of, of uh, U.S. airlines, just like any airlines, um, it's it's going to be shaped by factors we have no idea. You know that we don't know what the fuel price is going to be. That's enormously influential. We don't know what the economy is going to look like. That's enormously influential. Influential. We don't know what shocks that may or may not occur. Um, so, you know, given that we can, there, there are some things we can kind of focus on. So we can look at, um, for example, some new aircraft technology that uh, airlines already have on order that will um, be introduced over the next couple of years. And a good example of that is, you know, these um, XLR planes on their A321s. Um, and they'll right. have uh, a tremendous amount of range for an aerobody. So you might see a lot of new secondary transatlantic routes um, involving smaller cities. So things like that, we, you know, that's something to keep an eye on, um, you know, how networks might change with as different aircraft uh, are introduced. Of course, everybody's watching to see if Boeing is going to produce this new NMA aircraft. They obviously have their uh, attention focused on the MAX right now, but uh, the NMA is a wide body uh, concept that would replace 767, 757s, kind of that space in, in between the largest MAX and the smallest B-787s. Those would, um, you know, presumably um, offer airlines a lot of new opportunities. So that's, you know, aircraft technology is one area to watch. Do you think the A321XLR has put the marker down on what could have been the NMA space? Or do you think they're, they're still... Are you hearing still significant interest from airlines for a potential NMA? Still, still significant interest, very much so. Uh, the the XLR will 
will be able to handle certain things that uh, airlines are looking for. The NMA would be something bigger and, and more comprehensive in terms of their needs. Um, so if the NMA, if Boeing does decide to build an NMA, if they can do it at a cost airlines find acceptable with uh, economics, the airlines find attractive, it will be a big hit. I don't see any, you know, two ways about that. Excellent. Now, uh, you know, David Neilman, the um, founder of JetBlue, uh, is uh, starting a new airline company it's, that's based in Salt Lake City, but pro- will probably not operate out of there. Um, that will be the first new entrant in the U.S. industry for quite some time. Uh, do, do you see that there there's potential for more new airlines starting up in the next, say, one to five years? Right. So it's a bit of misery. Like if airlines are doing, if U.S. airlines are doing so well, why why aren't there entrepreneurs, you know, wanting to jump into the market and take advantage? And and there really hasn't been any. Uh, like you said, I mean, there, there hasn't. Jet, Neilman started JetBlue in the late 1990s. There hasn't been really anything since, anything of, of significant sense. And now he's he's starting this one again. And and I think the sort of the the answer, um, the the explanation, is that it's it, it's extremely difficult to start an airline in the U.S. for a few different reasons. One is that there's limited space at at some of the best airports that would you know, be most likely to uh, where, where a startup could work. That's one reason airport or space constraints. Um, access to aircraft is, is, is very difficult, especially right now, you know, with all these max delays and um, even the Airbus delays, um, difficult to get your hand on, you know, kind of the best aircraft. Um, it does require, you know, one of the lessons of any, any airline startup pretty much anywhere in, around the world is that unless you do it with, you know, just enormous amounts of upfront capital, you're probably going to wind up in trouble really fast. I mean, because your your early days, you're just going to not, you're not going to have any economies of scale. You're going to be, you know, under attack by competitors. So what you want to do, and JetBlue did this very well, is is you want to come in with just like an arsenal of, of money. And, uh, you know, where if you, if you are losing, if you were bleeding money for a long time, you'll still be okay. You'll still survive. Um, so that's what, um, Neilam is going to do with this new airline, but it's very difficult to do. You know, he has such a track record that he can pull it off. It's very difficult for others to do. There was some talk last year that um, the former CFO of United, Andrew Levy, who was also uh, an Allegiant executive before that, he was uh, working on a new um, startup as well, low-cost carrier, but uh, we haven't really heard much um, about that since, which suggests that he may be having difficult raising capital. So that's the reason right. why you really don't, you know, don't don't see much. You know, we'll be watching the Elman's new airline very closely to see where it will fly and, you know, what kind of missions it will do. We already know, we don't know much, but we already know that it's going to use A220s, which is an interesting aircraft and interesting capabilities. And we know that it's going to target um, secondary airports where there is more space. Uh, Providence, Rhode Island is, is, is one example. Right. I mean, that is that is the the million dollar question, right? I mean, you can you can buy aircraft with difficulty. You can set up an airline, but uh, most of the the most desirable air, airports in the country are at capacity. I mean, we, uh, so I'll be interested to see as well where this uh, this new new airline is going to go and what markets it'll serve. Right. And one of the things with startups, like if you were thinking, I've, I've had people ask me before, you know, if you if there was any one place in the country, which which place would you base your you know your startup? And and it's a difficult question. I mean, you can you know, you probably want to go to uh, 
a rather large city um, with, uh, you know, good demographics in terms of uh, fast economic growth and population growth, things like that. Um, you know, one sort of traditionally safer that has been on leisure markets because they're always easier to stimulate. Um, the demand is kind of always there. So it's um, it usually becomes a question of whether or not you can get your prices low enough, your unit costs, or sorry, not your price, your low, your unit costs low enough. Um, and that's maybe an easier game. It's more, you can control, especially when you're a startup, you can control your unit costs more than you control your revenues and your prices. So that kind of leads you to a place like Florida or Las Vegas. Um, the problem with those markets is that low cost carriers are just all over them. It never ceases to amaze me how much capacity that, you know, Allegiant and Frontier and Spirit and JetBlue are all just like plowing into Florida in particular. It's um, amazing, yet, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, they still continue to do well. It's like a bottomless pit. <laughs> I know. Wow, that, that is interesting. So, okay, we have to sort of talk about the uh, the elephant in the room, and that's that's the 737 MAX. And um, that's going to affect at least the first year of, the, uh, of this new decade. Boeing just this week said... Um, you know, it's going to require full simulator training for uh, for pilots before the Max returns to uh, service, and and that that's an interesting change because that's one of the things they said would not be required with the um, with the Max because there was so much commonality. Um, so that that kind of extend to my mind that extends the timeline for when that aircraft can go back to service. But a lot of airlines in this this country, I mean, American, United, and Southwest, ha, have based their capacity plans on the extended range and and uh, and uh, passenger capacity of the Max. I mean, what do you think the this now prolonged grounding of the aircraft will mean for for these airlines in the first year of this new decade? Well, as you said, it's it's going to uh, take it longer um, for airlines to get those things back in the air now with the with the with the extra training, and I'm I. I don't know if if it's you know what exactly that that will entail yet. Um, that's kind of remains to be seen. Um, it also it does add cost. You know, one of the selling points of the Max was that uh, you can you know switch a switch a seven thirty seven NG pilot over very easily with minimal extra training. Exactly. Um, yeah. Now that it's yeah now now that now that training is going to be more extensive. So yeah, there's cost and there's uh, there's time um, penalties and that are in play here. Um, you know, I, I don't think anybody should lose sight of the bigger picture being that, you know, the MAX is a, uh, it's an aircraft that, uh, you know, if and when it gets back in the air and back into service, it's going to provide very significant cost benefits to, to airlines. Um, Ryanair, for one, is, is um, relying on, you know, the unit cost savings it, it hopes to get from the MAX. Uh, very heavily, you know, as its labor costs go up, and you know, some some other areas of its business start to change and, and mature. Right. Um, the you know, the max is that's that's its big bet. That's how it's going to keep costs low. So that is, uh, you know, it's still a great machine. Now, looking, you know, further beyond, uh, eventually Boeing and Airbus will have to uh, debut a you know an all new narrow body that's right. you know, more of a clean sheet design that involves you know some of the some of the latest technologies and we don't know how far off that is you know maybe by the end of this decade we'll start hearing something it's probably a 2030s phenomenon as far as the introduction or anything like that 
Yeah, I mean that. Even if they announced a new narrow body, one of them announced a new narrow body today, that thing wouldn't be flying until twenty thirty, I would imagine. Right. Right. All right, Jay. Well, this has been a uh, a great look at the the early twenty twenties. Can you polish off that crystal ball and see what the last half of the decade is going to look like for the the airline industry? I'll work on that. We'll do that. We'll do that next. Uh, I got I to get my crystal ball out of the garage and we'll work on that uh, <laughs> the next podcast. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us again, Jay. And um, at, per usual, if you have any feedback, you can reach me at mu at skiff.com. That's it for this week's edition of the Airline Weekly Lounge.